Hi and welcome to the Next Conference podcast. This week's episode features Alan Sylvans and Zach Pendle's keynote from the Next Conference 2018. Okay, now just, just before I walk off the stage, what, what is the song on repeat in each of your households? And it's not Africa, I know. Oh, it's Africa it's, by Tony. Yeah, <laughs> what, what is the oh. song you, you hear the most? That's such a hard question. Okay, I'll give you at the end of the talk, I'll come back and okay. ask you again. All right. Sounds good. That's not fair. It's not a fair way <laughs> yeah, to try. Right off the bat. It's like just the hardest one? thing. Uh, hello. So many. Hello, everybody. Come in, sit down. Please come in, sit down. My name is uh, Alain Sylvain, and this is Zach Pintel. Hello. Um, we're happy to here to talk to you about pop music. Are you guys excited? We came all the way from New York. Are you excited to listen to this? Okay. Fantastic. Excited? That's good? Yeah, I think that's great. I'm the one on the left, in case you're wondering. Um, I'm uh, Alain, uh, and we're here to talk about pop. Pop music. You know, pop music often gets mocked for being silly, for being over the top, for being frivolous. We're just indulging in sort of the base aspects of society. We look at it in its silliness and we laugh and we move on. Almost as though it has no real meaning, almost as though it's, it's this shallow thing. Um, and there even, see, there's even a movement amongst uh, the music industry to totally discredit and mock pop music as we know it. Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters said, pop music in America right now is so superficial, it's fun to listen to, to turn up in your car when you're in traffic, but there's no substance at all. It's devoid of any meaning. But I think, you know, what we think and what we've been thinking about it is this, this deeper question is, is there a purpose to pop music? Is there actually a deeper social value and significance to what pop music provides to society at large? Or is it this sort of superficial thing that's fleeting that no one ever cares about? Because how is it possible that, that pop artists are so varied and so different. You know, Sonny and Cher, Madonna and Lil Wayne, they're, they're all considered pop artists, but they, their music is so different in every possible way. Pop music includes all sorts of genres. It includes country and hip hop and R&B and, and rock and roll. How is it possible that one musical genre, quote unquote genre, allegedly encapsulates all of these different things? And if you look, if you look at, the, at the top, the global top 50 uh, uh, playlist, a Spotify playlist, you really get a sense of what pop music is. And it really captures the interests and tastes of, of the moment today. It really is what you might consider popular music. It's, it's the most popular music at a given time, the things that are getting the greatest amounts of listen. The charts, not the sound, define popular music. It's at the base level, it's really about populism in the world of music. Um, and that's how we define it. That's how we think about it. Pop music is really an expression of the cultural consciousness now. Pop music is a reflection of the cultural consciousness now. It's not just this empty music. It's not these empty sounds that are fleeting in our head. It's a reflection of this greater cultural appetite. And let me, let me prove it to you. And I'll prove it to you through the history and through the story of the connection of pop music and culture. Um, it starts maybe, you might look at when radio started, and you might think about Elvis, and how rock and roll sort of epitomized in the United States integration. It was the first time black people and white people were really listening to the same music, and in fact the music was a, a true integration of those two things. And then of course it evolved, and Jerry Lee Lewis and other 
rock and roll artists pushed it, and it ended up reflecting a greater taboo. And some people called it devil's music. It actually coincided with the rise of conservatism in America. And then, of course, through the civil rights movement, we saw a new role for pop music. Pop music ignited the social appetite for change in the United States. And this is Sam Cooke, of course. And then, what was interesting, in the midst of a sort of mourning in the United States in the 60s, came this British band that brought this unbridled joy, this sort of escape and refuge from the the, the craziness of the time. And you saw marginal audiences beginning to use music to exercise their own rights and their own interests. And of course, Aretha Franklin did that so well. And in the midst of the Vietnam War, you saw pop music then shift. And this question of what's going on, Marvin Gaye asking that question, what's going on, brothers dying, what's going on? Pop music took a new role. And again, it reflected what was happening at the time. And again, we found refuge in pop music with dance, with disco, and gay and lesbian music as a, as a refuge for that marginal audience emerged. And again, you saw women finding a new role in, in, in the role of pop music and how that music thrived. The 80s in the United States, I don't need to tell you, it was an era of decadence and an area of luxury, an area of financial interest. And the music reflected that. Madonna's Material Girl is a great example of that. And of course, the output of that, the output of this decadence in the 80s was racial and social and civil strife. In the 80s, black Americans were dis de uh, disenfranchised. Crime increased, crack epidemic, the, the jobs. You saw music really beginning to reflect that moment. And, and as a result, you saw racial tensions at an all-time high through riots in LA and New York and OJ. And the music, this, this song, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, wasn't just a pop song. This was, this was an anthem for an era in the United States. This is what people were feeling and needing. And pop, pop music was playing that role. And you had it here too. You had it here too. Berlin and, and techno is a really interesting story. Techno helped you create a new unified Berlin in this moment of the early 90s. And then you saw it with, with grunge and the nihilism and the melancholy of, of that generation coming out of the 90s, really finding a new voice in pop music. And it goes on and on. Spice Girls and the role of women or the new role of men and the new, you like, you like the Spice Girls, the new role of men. And the new idea, to, this acceptable idea of a vulnerable emotional man at this time came about with the Backstreet Boys. The globalization of music with Ricky Martin and the quote-unquote Latinization of pop music. That, again, is proof point. In the midst of a global tragedy, where's the love? That's what made this song so prominent in that post-9-11 world. And of course, Social media and technology changed what made pop music pop music. Social media brought new heroes to the fore. So pop music was a reflection of that technological uh, innovation more than anything. It certainly wasn't a good song. <laughs> Lady Gaga. And, and again, shifting her voice and becoming a, a real a mouthpiece for, for society at large. Talking about being born this way. And then at the same time, we looked for escape. We looked for escape in a post-recession world. Pop music provided that simple candy. But it's not always candy. Sometimes it's darker. Sometimes it's realer. Sometimes it's got to be Kendrick Lamar. Sometimes it's got to be it's got to be a true reflection of what we're feeling. Up until today, Cardi B, the story of a of true innovation, the idea of an artist can come from anywhere. The point is, it's not just pop music. It's not just bouncy songs that just kind of come in and out of your head and you don't really think about. And in fact, the fact that we don't think about shows how effective 
pop music is as a mobilizing tool for society that really reflects where we are, what we're feeling together. It's the hive mind through music. And you might say, well, doesn't, doesn't all art do that? Doesn't all art in some way reflect the moment of the time? Um, but I'm, I'm going to argue that that's not true. That pop music isn't just a passive mirror. It isn't just something that's playing back what's happening at the time. It's actually an active medium. There's a utility to pop music because it unites us, because it almost serves as a collective language that we share. It's the place in which we deliberate and dissect the issues of the day. It's the way culture and the ideas and the beliefs, they really ruminate and they cook. It's actually in pop music more than many other places. I like this quote by um, a, this uh, German philosopher. Uh, music expresses in an exceedingly universal language, in mere tones and with the greatest distinctness and truth, the inner being, the in itself of the world. Here we are in the, uh, a music conference, at a digital conference. Let us not forget the power that music truly provides. That it's actually not about technology. It's not about notes. It's not about musicianship. It's not about craft. There, we have a primal connection to music. There have been numerous studies that have shown you can play music from around the world to someone who's never heard that music and who doesn't understand the language, and they will be able to decipher the, the emotive themes within that music. Um, there was an ethnic group in, Cam in Cameroon called the Mafa group that were played, that never heard the radio. They were never on the radio, never listened to the radio, and they were played Western music. And they were able to decipher what songs were about joy, what songs were about sadness or fear or love. Music transcends language. Music is true, a, a universal language. In a world of diversity where often values clash, music leaps across language barriers and unites people of quite different cultural backgrounds. And so through music, all people can come together to make the world a more harmonious place. Music is diplomacy. Music has the power to bring people together. Or, <laughs> 62 million people voted for Trump. Uh, it's a lot of people, and I'm still suffering emotionally from that. But what's interesting is 1.32 billion streams of Despacito. Whether you like the song or not, Despacito <laughs> took a hold of society at large globally. And, and of course, these aren't unique listens, they're, they're just streams. But the sheer volume of that sort of uh, uh, devotion to a song really says something profound about, about our political place and the fact that we're, we're divided when it comes to politics, but we're not divided when it comes to music. There is actually a true universal pop music. And music, it, as I said, it's natural. It starts from the very beginning. There have been a numerous studies that have shown that babies react differently with, through uh, music and through communication and, and uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of the parenting talk, like the Google Gaga talk, that's music that babies grab onto and, they, and, they, and it truly uh, stimulates them. And, and it, of course, it enters our collective vernacular, bootylicious, pronounced bootylicious, as you can see from the very sophisticated chart here. Um, bootylicious um, is a term that, that, you know, is now in the, the Oxford Dictionary um, as of 15 years. It, it's a term that entered our, our pup lexicon and really began to really speak to the power pop music provides. And, and, and that pop music evolves and it even evolves into dance and gestures 
And, and you know, you see that play out and you know, Beyonce is a, the queen at this. Um, you see it play out in pop culture. You know, they'll take these same ideas and play it out in the, in this, the natural day-to-day con- uh, content. You'll see politicians use that same language. And again, they're building off of po- this pop music that we sometimes think is frivolous. How is this frivolous if it's penetrating every part of culture and it's truly uniting everybody? Or, or the dab. I'm gonna let you watch this for a second because it's so this disturbing. This video makes me so uncomfortable. It's, it's not that hard. We have to watch this. I'm sorry. It's so uncomfortable that it's fantastic to watch. Yeah. I, I, can, I can watch this again if you want. It's, it's just, I was up late last night in Hamburg watching this. It's, it's, uh, it's really funny, and it's, it's so interesting to see how that phenomenon, the dab, really spread across culture in a really massive way, and it came from music that became pop music. And now, what, you know, what is dabbing? You know, is it, is it a dance? Is it, is it about music? No, it's actually our cultural, our cultural language. And, and no one represents that better than Sir Michael Jackson, who was really the, the first super global pop star who traveled the world. And through his experience, he united people and really demonstrated the connective tissue that pop music can provide. So I just went on a, on a ramble, and I'm sorry, Zach, but we have to talk about about pop music and it, and invites the question, you know, why are we here today um, at, at this particular conference? And it's because I think there's a lot that the world of digital can learn from the evolution of pop music. Totally. I mean, you're laying all the groundwork for it. Over the course of the last 60 years, we've seen pop music as a cultural construct grow from the music all the way into, as you sort of ended it around Michael Jackson, something that manages to unite us all. And you could very easily argue that as you draw that through line across the last 50, 60 years of pop music, no industry has seen a greater disruption in the way that it's produced, discovered, distributed, enjoyed than music itself. I mean, just the midst of all of that sort of diversification in the way that people consume it, if nothing else, has been pretty dramatic. Even our company is sort of in, in the middle there, in the midst of, of where we are today, which is uh, sort of a broader way of being able to um, distribute and, and enjoy music than you ever have before. And, you know, there's been an argument made at some point that this could lead to sort of a, a more generic universe of, of pop music, that that could result in all the edges being filed off, basically because people can get anything they want at any point. Uh, to what degree is there any sort of structure around it when th- there's a, sort of that degree of, of, um, of chaos. But how can digital amplify the inherent power of pop music is the question we're here to answer today. And basically, we believe that digital can amplify the natural power of pop, and certainly has over the last 10, 15 years or so, despite all that massive disruption, um, that it's had the potential to make pop music a more sensitive instrument for uh, looking at culture as well, not just uh, one that sort of messes with the way that we consume it. But to do so, certainly our industry, the music industry, has had to embrace a number of key shifts in the way that we think about music and culture and the intersection between the two. So I'll go through a couple of those, or we'll go through a couple of those. The first is around power. It's maybe the more obvious one, and certainly one that we had to contend with quite early on, that for the first maybe 40 years, 50 years of the pop music industry as we know it today, the vast majority of decision-making around what was popular was delegated to a very small number of individuals. That's still true today. Those who are figuring out what music is discovered, what music is going to be distributed widely. Uh, And in the case of Ellen, as we saw, sometimes it's with something like the Dabs, sometimes it's in the case of finding a YouTube star she throws onto onto her show, uh, who's never put out a piece of music in the traditional sense. They're figuring out what to take from the corners of culture and bring it right in to the mainstream. But as we've 
they still have this disproportionate power to break artists, I guess uh, it is to say. But as we've seen especially streaming rise, we've also been able to now measure the degree to which the people have the ability to have their say in that as well. So it's not just these singular cultural tastemakers putting things out into the world and saying, this will be on the radio, this will be famous. Instead, we can see it bubble up. One example of this from several years ago was Lord's Royals. It started from a place of cultural curation. Sean Parker put it on his Hipster International playlist, which at the time was one of the sort of biggest taste-making forces on Spotify. But after that, it was the people and it was our users that took it to each incremental step from there as we saw it hit different viral charts, as it reached number one on the viral charts, as it hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, and all of that preceded her playing her first show in the States. Now, that was something that, of course, our cultural curators were certainly aware of, but they were watching it happen at the ground level and noticing that that track had uh, maybe a bit more velocity to it than they would have expected off the bat. It happens with individual artists. It also happens with genres. Reggaeton is a good example of that. Um, prior to reggaeton becoming a globally famous genre, there was very limited scope for Latin artists in pop music. You would see uh, Ricky Martin or Shakira break through with major international super hits, as, as we talked about. But as a genre, it was, it was fairly relegated uh, to its, its corner, I guess it is to say. Now, one way that we break in new artists on Spotify is by essentially beta testing them through a number of playlists. That's how Lord's Royals got big as well. Uh, we put them on playlists that have maybe a smaller user base, see how they perform as they are enjoyed by those who are listening to that playlist. They get upstreamed into larger and larger playlists until they wind up on, in the case of the Latin genre, our flagship playlist is called Viva Latino, millions and millions of subscribers, and from there into the global playlists. And reggaeton as a genre, simply because of its inherent popularity, has risen faster than hip-hop over the course of the last several years into a global juggernaut, cultural juggernaut, essentially. Now, our argument would be that it was a global juggernaut all along. We're now just able to recognize it and give it the platform that it deserves, and that's because we're paying attention to the way that people are, are listening to this music. Uh, so taking an established genre and, and making it global. Likewise, taking a genre that doesn't exist at all and legitimizing it. Uh, mumble rap, uh, which is a, a, a corner of the hip-hop universe that maybe even three or four years ago was not, not have a term associated with it, has turned out to be one of the biggest and sort of like most legitimate corners of, of hip-hop today. across uh, the I can't deal with mumble rap. I hate mumble rap. Controversially. <laughs> The people have spoken. The people have spoken. Yes, <laughs> they respond to it, and that's what you know. That's what we learned, and we've learned with Spotify. It's really interesting to see how that that music's taken a hold. I'm a, I'm a hip hop head, and and mumble rap is really disturbing to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll go through the second the second shift we're seeing is is about appeal, um, and and how and how pop music has is begun to evolve. Where it used to be about the lowest common denominator, where it was about the masses and what united us all in sort of this, this easy way. And it's evolved to be this more of a provocative, thoughtful, deeper thing. And, it, and it's kind of like ketchup. Um, ketchup is, is, is sort of the dominant condiment. Uh, uh, just go with me for a second, okay? Ketchup is, is everyone loves ketchup around the world. And, and it turns out that there's only one ketchup that we all love, and it's, it's, it's Heinz. Heinz is the dominant ketchup in the world. And there have been a number of uh, competitors that have been developed to try to take a piece of that market, which is a huge market, but Heinz still wins. Heinz has something like 85% market share of, of ketchup over, over years. And it's not like other condiments that where their uh, other competitors have popped in over and over and over again and kind of eroded at it, like mustard has many different players. Ketchup only has Heinz. 
And that's because the Heinz recipe, for whatever reason, somehow has all five of our flavor needs. Sweet, sour, bitter, what am I missing? Salty and umami. So it's all five. Somehow, this, this food has everything, has everything that we want from, from food. And, and this, this is a story that Malcolm Gladwell told. Now, I, this is not something original. But it's interesting because pop music has sort of been that, that thing. Um, but it's changed. Um, in 1965, if you looked at all the lyrics um, of pop music of the time, you'll see that they really, they really, the themes were really about love. They were about, you know, baby. They were really kind of these innocent ideas. And now if you look at 2015, you look at that same exercise, and you look at, you dissect the, the lyrics through word clouds, you see that there's a little bit more complexity to it. Yes, there's love, but there's also things like, um, you know, ba- the baby's there, there's home, and there's real, and love is smaller. And it's just a much more eclectic mix of ideas and themes in, in pop music. And you can even look at uh, the Global Top 50. This is uh, this week's Global Top 50 um, on Spotify, and you'll see the, the, the names of the songs are different than what you might have seen in the 60s or, or 70s. Things like um, In My Mind or In My Feelings. Um, they're, they're different concepts. And in fact, they are conceptual. They're not just really surface level. And you can even look at the, the pop art. You know, it's not hard to find album covers where the artist is looking off into the distance longingly and sadly. <laughs> and that's because things are a little bit more introspective. You wouldn't have found this in the 90s. In the 90s, you would have, it would have been like explosions and fluorescent, you know, it would have been crazy. Now it's really a, this, this moment of much more introspective self-awareness. And it's not only the images and, 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 and what you're seeing, it's also the music itself. Um, most pop music for a long time really was in the, the major key. And for those who know music, the major key is C, E, and G as an example. This is a good example of a song in the major key. And it, and it, it hits you really easily uh, in your mind because it, there's nothing really adventurous about it. But what we've seen in pop music recently um, are sounds that now in the minor key. So C, E flat, and G is an example of a minor chord. And it's a little different. It's a little different on the brain and it kind of twists and it's kind of stilts the way we hear music. And that's because music is getting more and more complex. Or, or the concept album, um, and this is, this is best embraced by African-American soul artists in, in the US that are really using their albums to, to talk about bigger, complex issues um, that, are, that have now become pop music. Um, formation is a political movement, um, but it's also a pop album. And you also see that through Genius. Um, this is an example of uh, Genius on the Spotify app which started out as a the genius, came from Rap Genius, which was just about lyrics at first, but now it's much more about people wanting to learn more about the sounds and the music themselves. Yeah, well, one thing that has been so interesting to me about the rise of genius over the last several years is that as we talk about the increasing complexity of pop music and the increasing sort of depth of meaning in a lot of the songs, it's not lost on the listeners, and they're seeking out that meaning, and they're seeking the context, and they're digging through all the lyrics and trying to understand exactly what everything means. Yeah, meaning is, is the perfect word to use. That's, that's what people are looking for music and, and they're pop stars. And, um, you know, this, this performance at the Super Bowl was profound. Um, it was profound. You know, Beyonce wasn't the headliner. There was actually a sports event that was happening that same time. Um, Coldplay was playing. But the next day, you know, if you looked at um, search traffic, more people searched Beyonce than searched the, the teams. Um, the Patriots and the Panthers, or even Coldplay, which headlined the event, um, which really speaks to, again, the power, the power of pop music. 
We won't tell the Broncos. We'll keep that quiet. <laughs> yeah. uh, a third shift is around access. Um, and this closed echo chamber of pop music that's given way to a world of more open exploration. And one way that at least I like to illustrate it is as we look at a breakdown of genre over the last 50 years or so is a pretty profound shift from the left side to the right side. Not only that we have more genres represented, but also that they've sort of wound up uh, becoming more equal in their, in their distribution in a lot of ways. Um, this is from a, a Google Music timeline from a few years back, but it's still you know, relatively, relatively current. And one thing that's interesting about this as an aside is that the music that's defined as pop, back to the earlier point about pop being denoted not by its style, but instead by its cultural impact, there's this pretty consistent percentage of music out at any point in time. Even going back to the 1950s, it's been designated as pop music. Um, but we're seeing today that this is a considerably more fragmented landscape from a genre perspective. And perhaps unsurprisingly, that means that art, people are listening to a lot more artists than they used to. Now, this could be, there's a lot of cause and effect in here, but certainly one way that we're at Spotify trying to push people into listening to more artists because we genuinely believe that that type of exploration is a good thing, and we know that people enjoy it when they find it, is putting out all these personalized playlists, which you guys may be familiar with, Discover Weekly, which introduces 40 new songs every week that you've never heard before, or mixes out of your, your old music, essentially trying to make sure that as people listen to more music, they're also listening to a greater variety of music, because we know that that uh, tends to result in essentially more enjoyment as time goes on. As a result of that, and as a result of that diversification of the number of genres that are out there, we're finding that the majority of people under the age of 32 don't have a single genre that, they're, uh, that they can identify as one that all of the music that they love falls into. Lines are blurring between genres, classifying artists and their music becomes increasingly difficult. Half of the top charts we just saw on that previous slide of this accurate as of a day ago are hip-hop artists. Does that make all hip-hop pop? People could, could argue uh, that that is the case. Oof. That's a profound question. Hip-hop is pop yeah. music by our definition as we laid it out. Is anyone here familiar with the Maya principle? It's not terribly obscure, but it's one that we point to quite a bit. Um, most advanced yet acceptable is the shorthand for it. Basically says that when you introduce people to things that are completely brand new, they tend to shoo it away. But when you introduce a degree of familiarity, they're much more likely to adopt it. Uh, this is something we've had to pay close attention to as certainly genres have become more fragmented, as artists have started to collaborate in different ways that are unpredictable, that when we're trying to introduce new artists to fans, we need to do so with enough of a degree of familiarity that they're going to latch on. When Discover Weekly was developed uh, several years ago, um, again, it's a, it's a playlist that essentially drops 40 new tracks into a playlist for every user that they've never heard before, but that are adjacent to their current interests. So as you can imagine, it's pushing people in terms of genre, it's pushing them in terms of artists, perhaps just in terms of the like, cadence or tone of the music that they like to listen to. Initially, it was intended to be a, a list of entirely brand new music that, no one had, that you had never heard before. And because of a slight glitch in the code, when they were beta testing it, it started to introduce a music that people had heard just in a small percentage. Um, every you know, fourth or fifth track or so was, was from a familiar artist or was a familiar track itself. And what they found was that engagement skyrocketed on the playlist when it had that degree of familiarity in it because it gave people something to latch onto. And there's an important sort of degree of, of sort of exploration and familiarity that needs to be played with uh, from in, in this new world, um, especially when it's harder than ever to categorize. I don't know what we call a track that's Paul McCartney. Kanye is hilarious. Oh, 
I was thinking about doing that in this presentation because if I danced yeah. next to Zach, would it be, <laughs> would it be weird? Does that mean I have a bass? <laughs> anyway. Um, onward. Uh, another major change has been around process. Uh, this one's maybe hidden a little bit under the surface, but one that is incredibly important as well. From a fixed formula for how music is created and distributed to this responsive iteration that we've seen in a couple of different ways. One of them is the way that artists are releasing their music. Uh, both Kanye and Drake updated their albums after their albums were released. Now, even several years ago, that was not possible from a technology and distribution standpoint. But now artists are embracing that as essentially a creative outlet, that after an album is released, they can go back and change the track names. They can add new tracks. They can take things off. They can change the order. An album becomes a living thing, which is not a reality that an artist had from a creative standpoint even a few years ago. Yeah, even... Uh are, are you all familiar with, the, with This Is America, that song? Um, this Is America was a song that Childish Gambino made um, and actually released it as a video and it had a profound impact. Ended up being adopted around the world um, and, and interpreted in different ways. So there's a, there's a This Is Germany and there's a This Is Nigeria. And the video... This Is America. The video is, is just a great example of how that how the, the power of pop music really transcends and gets adopted by many people. And it, what I love about this example is This Is America isn't a song, nor, it's a, nor is it a video. It's really a, a true sort of symbol of how we all consume and deliberate our same issues in the same way. Uh, there's also a speed to market implication, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, Drake and a rapper named Meek Mill were engaged in uh, several year-long uh, beef with one another. Uh, Meek Mill made some comments that Drake decided to respond to with a diss track that he put out and hit number 21 on the Billboard chart shortly thereafter, all within a matter of weeks. Uh, again, something that never could have happened in that speed um, several years ago. Um, to that end of, of sort of the, the collaborative element of this, we've been, been dancing around a bit. To put a, a bit of a finer point on it, collaborations are shooting through the roof. Um, as artists are playing off each other more, these uh, collaborations represent more of like the, the pop music landscape than they ever have. Again, back to that top 50 chart, six of the top 10 tracks on the charts right now are named collaborations between artists. And that's an interesting piece because when somebody is out there looking for a Kendrick Lamar track, odds are good they're going to stumble across not just his music, but the collaborations he's done with Maroon 5 or with Imagine Dragons, who are full-on pop artists. Likewise, in the other direction, an Imagine Dragons fan is likely going to be exposed to Kendrick Lamar's music, and that's the sort of cross-pollination that's happening more frequently and sort of more visibly than perhaps it has. And a final piece is around, around measurement, um, not in a sort of deep analytics standpoint, but in, the, in the, the insights that we can pull forward about not just what people are listening to, but how they are listening to it. And especially when it comes to artists, what they can take away from that, from this one-dimensional tracking of maybe how many streams we've had or how many radio stations are playing a certain track, to getting underneath the surface and how people are listening to it. And one tool we have, just as a way of illustrating it, is a Spotify for Artists, which is a, a dashboard that anyone who distributes music through Spotify gets access to. Shows them everything from demographics to locations to uh, the types of, just essentially every piece of audience breakdown that you can imagine around who's listening to their music, where people are listening to their music. We're finding that artists are routing their tours around where people are listening to their music, especially in the United States for artists that are uh, tend to angle toward um, college audiences, they can track down campuses or regional areas that their music tends to pop in so that they know that they should be traveling there. 
Um, it also gives artists an idea of not just if they have a hit track that, that's on its way up, how many people are listening to it, but where those streams are coming from, which may seem like a very simple metric. But for example, if you have a pop Latin crossover track that's about to hit, and most of these streams are coming from Spanish language playlists, it gives you a lot of insight about why, where that popularity is coming from, not just that the popularity sort of exists. Um, one thing that our founders talked about recently is that Metallica is using Spotify data to build their set lists for each of their shows city by city to make sure that they're grabbing all of the hits that people in that city and, and region tend to listen to. Another one uh, that we like to show, just as an example, sort of how this, you, can, you can get underneath the, the data to pull out an insight that may not have been quite as clear on the surface, we know that people's music tastes tend to stagnate around age 30. One thing that isn't quite clear from this is people listen to sort of more music as they get older. They rather have more occasions that they can listen to music, so hours listened tend to go up. But if we think of the middle of this chart as sort of the zeitgeist of pop music, the top 50, and the outside of the chart as sort of the less popular of the spectrum, as people get older, it might be hard to read in the back, but as from like age 14 around to age 48, you can see how their tastes slowly sort of get that escape velocity. <laughs> away from pop music and toward a fairly confined set of music, of tracks and artists that they enjoy listening to. And by their mid-30s or so, people are pretty much stuck in their tastes. Increasingly so for parents. As they become parents, they become even more stuck in their tastes too. Not in a bad way, it just means that they're <laughs> listening to sort of a more confined set of music as they get older. Um, it also helps us understand our connotative language culturally. There are over 35 million playlists on Spotify, user-generated, that have an emoji in the uh, playlist name. That gives us enough data to start pulling apart which artists are associated with which emojis based on what playlists they tend to show up on more, uh, which gives us just this sort of like visual, it's hard to translate into words, you, you can just sort of get a, a bit of a, of a, a tapestry of what people tend to associate with each of these artists and maybe the tone of their music. So if we're looking at Adele, that seems to be some cocktail of sadness and sleep. I guess, <laughs> which makes sense. Fair enough. Uh, this is one that's just random, but I love it, is uh, we have these temporal qualities that we attach to, to songs as well. One of those temporal qualities is acousticness, or how acoustic a track is. And when you overlay that with, in this case, third-party data around weather, we found that, for example, in the city of Houston, they are incredibly responsive to rain and tend to listen to a lot more acoustic music when it starts to rain versus other cities. So I don't know if that one's particularly like, actionable, but it's super interesting nonetheless. Um, we talked about Gangnam Style before. This is sort of an interesting anecdote. Uh, South Korea beat Germany in the World Cup, which advanced Mexico or kept them in. And as a result, Mexico responded by streaming Gangnam Style 2,000% mm -hmm. uh, more than they were the week before. So that helps us discern moments of, um, of local significance. So that's sort of how, how measurement has helped us change sort of like the, the quality of what we're, we're looking at. So that's, those are the five main points. And I think we're right about a time here, but just to, to cover off on them quite quickly, uh, balancing top-down and bottom-up curation is one thing we've had to contend with over the past several years, fighting mindlessness, provoking thought, popping the bubble and expanding perspectives, acknowledging that iteration is, is greater than stagnation, and sort of transforming understanding in, into action. And to turn this back out in, in your direction and being conscious of the fact that we're at the next conference today and we're thinking about how we can take some of these things and apply them going forward, just some questions that we, that we pose that may be interesting to think about as you walk out the door. 
How can we measure an audience's collective perspective to inform business decisions? It's easy for us to look at what everybody is listening to. Is there some sort of a parallel in your line of business? We know that niche perspectives generate mass appeal. We're not just generating popular culture from the, most, from the lowest common denominator. You can have a point of view, things can still become famous. Can we acknowledge that and draft off that reality? Uh, how can we help the audiences find experiences based on their interests, not just our labels? We think about genre in our case, but are there other constructs in your business that are maybe helping you organize your thoughts or your products or services, but are actually counterintuitive to the people that you serve and their interests? Can we find ways to iterate intentionally? Um, and finally, how can data help us understand why patterns emerge, not just, just when they do? So we'll leave you with that. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, please reach out to us. You can reach us on social media. You can talk to us afterwards um, and ask us any questions. Uh, we thank you for your time. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Small gift, small gift. But you. You, you owe us this one thing. Let me rephrase the question. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I learned a lot in this talk. I'm now very worried for my kids because if they stick to their present days, they have to listen to mumble rap for the rest of their lives. <laughs> yeah, But exactly. you oh come God. home, That's you're so tired, good. you put on one so What's the one ah. song that sort of... You know, Give John, us one song. They just discovered an old John Coltrane album that had been hiding for the last 50 or 60 years and just put it out and... It puts me to sleep every time, but that's exactly what I use it for. <laughs> a whole album. Thank yes. you. And you, Alain. What is the song? Oh, man. I listen to a lot of different music. I play music. Um, I really am into Afrobeat at the moment. Um, you know, Wizkid and all Whiskey. that. That's, that's a we'll lot just, of my We'll go with Wizkid. Yeah, okay. okay. It's not a song. But an so album we'll and an artist. With. I'm happy. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was Alan Sylvans and Zach Pantel's keynote from the Next Conference 2018. If you liked this episode as much as we did, go to iTunes, rate us with five stars and leave a review. We're happy to hear from you.